All right, grab, grab your Bibles or your devices. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. It's good to be back again. I was away last Sunday. It was uh, Mother's Day, and we actually had a dance competition for our daughter Kaylee up in Toronto, so I have not been able to go to all of those because they often fall on Sundays, but I uh, was able to get away to that one. And so uh, I don't want to brag, but guys, I'm becoming a pretty good dance mom, i got to say. <laughs> New world to us. It's our first time doing this, but it's been good to, to see our daughter come alive in a whole new way. That part has been awesome. And, uh, and I got to watch last week's service. I thought Susan and, and Beth and Amy and Susie did such a good job just sharing the testimony of what God's doing in their lives, sharing the word of God. So thank you, ladies. Uh, you did awesome in that. We are in a series uh, through Galatians. So Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be today. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. That is our heart's cry. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, we are here to help you take those next steps. So if you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, if you are brand new to this and just starting to figure it out, if you're here and you're just curious and you're just kind of checking things out, if you're here and you're in a season where you're full of faith, if you're here and you're in a season where you're struggling or in doubt, wherever you're at, we're here to help you take your next steps. And so we focus on that primarily three ways. Upward, inward, and outward. Upward, we want to take our next steps in our walk with him, our connection with him, our knowledge of him, our understanding of him. Inwardly, we want to take our next steps as he does his work in us to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. And then outwardly, we want to take our next steps as we live this out, as we engage with other people, as we live out the mission with the world all around us. And so we are wanting to grow in those areas. Our series on Galatian, where we have just started in Galatian 1, verse 1, and are working our way uh, through the book, we've called the Freedom Gospel. There is so much good stuff in the book of Galatians as I was, uh, we were in pre-service prayer this morning and I said to the group that we were, as we were praying into the service, uh, man, there's so much beauty in this book and, and so much richness and so much uh, kind of really profound, dense teaching. Uh, so it's not necessarily easy to whip through it on a Sunday morning. We're, we're not going through every verse as in-depth as we could, but we're wanting to highlight what we've called the freedom gospel because the book of Galatia, in the book of Galatians, uh, the word of God is wanting to make sure we all really understand how good the good news really is. And there is something in us, even though we know the good news, if you've walked with Jesus for a long time, you know the story well. If you've grown up in church, you know what the Bible has to say, so we know what the gospel is. And yet, there does just seem to be something built into our human nature that even though we know how good it is, it's really easy to fall back into old stuff. And even though the gospel comes to bring us freedom, it's really easy to fall back into chains again. And so Galatians is a great book for all of us. Wherever you're at, if you're new to this, if you're seasoned at this, the book of Galatians has something for everybody. And so in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Galatia, and he's very concerned that people have come into the church from the outside who have taken the goodness of the gospel and have turned it into something else. They've taken how good it really is and they've twisted it into a version that isn't nearly as good. And so Paul is wanting to bring correction to that and just remind them of the goodness of that gospel. 
There's a man in the 1800s named Charles Blondin. Uh, he's the guy underneath the other guy who's on his back there in this promotional picture. And he was an acrobat. He was a French acrobat in the 1800s. And he was one of the first ones to do crazy things like walk in a tightrope across Niagara Falls uh, and do some of these death-defying stunts. And so we've seen that a bit more regularly in the years since then. I remember sometime in the last years, uh, 10 years or so, you might remember Nick Willenda did that across the Niagara Falls. And, uh, and they do it now with safety harnesses and stuff. They didn't do any of that back then. They literally just kind of threw a rope, dragged it across the river, raised it up, and then he just walked across with nothing to support him. And he was so good at it that it actually got kind of boring, uh, if you can imagine, that it's just, oh, he's done that before, and, and that's just something he's really good at. And so he started do, doing things like, not only will I walk across these great heights uh, without any safety, I'll do it with somebody on my back, and I'll walk the tightrope with somebody on my back, and uh, he kept trying to up the ante. And so um, he did all these crazy death-defying de death stunts long before there were safety measures in place. Um, and he actually died at a relatively young age from diabetes, of all things. Not any crazy stunt that he was doing. And so he survived the death-defying stunts. Uh, he was not able to survive the diabetes. And so he would, always trying to up the ante, always trying to make it more interesting, more spectacular. And so N.T. Wright uses the example that when there was a point where he started taking people across on his back. So, I mean, if you can imagine, the rope is like five centimeters wide, and you're hundreds of feet up in the air. So, of course, for all of us, death is the end of that story if we're trying to do that, right? Like, we're not doing that well. Uh, so he's obviously skilled, he's obviously practiced, he's obviously figured it out. And so to do that alone is incredible, right? It's, it's mind-blowing. And so he starts bringing someone on his back. So if you can imagine adding another, whatever, 150 to 200 pounds on your back and what that must do to your balance, right? Because now you're getting pulled backwards. And the, the rope is still small and you're still that high up in the air. And that became the thing that he did to draw the crowds and he did it well. He never had an accident he never had a slip up in all the years that he did it. So N.T. Wright uses this picture in the book of Galatians that if you can imagine you're the guy on his back or you're the lady on his back as he's crossing the river and he's getting halfway across and you've put all your trust in the fact that he knows what he's doing, right? He's done this many times. He's very much in control. He knows exactly what he's up to. He wouldn't put you at risk because to put you at risk would put him at risk, right? So there's a, a very high level of trust you're needing to walk in. But it would be like if I'm the guy on his back and we're halfway across Niagara Falls, not where like, oh, Niagara Falls are, you know, way over there behind the safety gate, but Niagara Falls are right there, right? So if there's a slip up, that's where we're going. We get halfway across the river and then I say to the guy, you know what? I think I can do it on my own from here. Let me off. I'm going the rest of the way by myself. And N.T. Wright says, that's what happens when we start adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what was happening in the church of Galatia. And the church of Galatia, they had come in, they had preached Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and said the way to get right with God is to put all your hope in him and walk with him. Other teachers had come in and said, well, it's not just that, though. 
right? Put your hope in him, but you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this. You still have to earn it. You still have a role to play. There's still something that you need to commit in order to get right with God. And so Paul comes into the Galatian church pretty fiery, probably as fiery, as angry as we ever see him in any of his writings. And Paul's coming in to correct that error, that the gospel is Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus you have to earn anything, that you will do anything on your own to make this happen. It's all about Jesus. So there is a group, we've talked about this in previous weeks, that uh, in Galatians gets called the circumcision group. Sometimes they get called the Judaizers. And they were ones who said that even though Jesus had died for us, and even though he had paid the price for our sins, and even though he had risen from the dead to conquer over death for our sake, you still had to do a bunch of things in order to get right with with God. And so they were always very concerned that people were following the law. They were Jewish people who were now Christians. They believed in Jesus, but they weren't totally moving away from the Jewish side of their faith. And the Jewish people had what gets called the law. And the law is the Old Testament commandments, what God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. These are all the rules that God is calling you to live by, to live a perfectly holy life, to live exactly the way God wants you to live. This is the list of rules you need to follow in order to do do that. And so the law is in place in the Jewish faith. And as Jesus comes, Jesus says, it's actually, you're not made right with God by following the law really well, because actually you can't follow the law perfectly well. Everybody is a sinner. So Jesus actually comes to save us in spite of our sin. And that because he paid the price for our sin, we don't get judged by the law anymore in terms of our salvation. And so the law is there, and Jesus is there to save us from the sin that gets laid out in the law. But the circumcision group came along, and so in Acts 15.5, we have a line from this group. Some of the believers, so they believe in Jesus, they belong to the party of the Pharisees, stood up in the group of Christians, said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so they're kind of fusing the message. Of Jesus with their own Jewish faith, which is sort of understandable. I can't quite fault them for that, but that wasn't the truth of what Jesus had taught. And so they're saying, yes, Jesus, but Jesus plus, right? Put your hope and trust in him, trust in his cross, trust in his resurrection, but then you have to do all these things to be truly right with God. You got to go back and obey the law perfectly. That's what you need to do in order to get your sins forgiven and be right with God. Paul will have none of that, and we're going to see some of that fire as we jump into our text today. So we're in Galatians chapter 2. We've worked our way up to verse 10 so far. Today we're going to start in verse 11. When Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul says, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the group I just mentioned. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Sick burn by the Apostle Paul on Peter. We who are Jews by birth are, and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree or hung on a cross. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, there's, I like in Galatians, there's a little bit of storytelling going on, and then there's a little bit of correction going on, and then there's a really good just theology coming, really good truth that Paul is bringing to us. So it starts with a kerfuffle. There's a conflict between Paul and Peter. Uh, these guys were colleagues. They got along. They were on the same team. They were both committed to the gospel. But there's a disagreement that Paul tells us the story on, and it all gathers around eating. So the first few verses of our passage, Paul says, I had to correct Peter publicly because he was clearly in the wrong. And the nature of what was going on had to do with some of the things we've covered already, where the question had arisen, uh, now that the Gentiles are coming to faith, do they need to follow the Old Testament law? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to commit themselves to the commandments? Ultimately, the early church decided, no, they don't. Jesus actually comes to set us free from that. And so we're not going to make it hard for the Gentiles to follow after God. We're going to call them to follow after Jesus, but it's a faith-based decision they are making. They're not earning their way. So they're simplifying what it means to follow after God. And Peter agreed with that. Peter is one of the ones who helped understand that from Scripture and from the Holy Spirit. And yet, Paul tells a story that Peter, who is living in the freedom of the gospel, begins to get a little nervous about that circumcision group. 
And so when the circumcision group started coming around, Peter starts to withdraw from the Gentiles and he starts to draw some divisions. Well, there's Jewish believers over here and Gentile believers over there. He starts to apparently kind of buy into some of what the circumcision group was teaching of what the Gentiles need to do. And part of the law said that Jews and Gentiles don't eat together. And so he pulls away from eating from them as a way of of making the circumcision group know that he's kind of with them on that. And so we talked in our previous series on Jesus and the sinners about table fellowship, right? So to share a meal with someone back then in the ancient Near East wasn't quite the same as just saying like, hey, do you guys want to come over for lunch after church? And um, we'll hang out and have a good time. That there was a, a depth of fellowship happening at the table that was profound. And that if I had you over to my house for a meal, I'm actually for that time making you part of my family that you are protected as a member of my family, that you get to share in everything that I have to offer as part of the family, that there's a oneness happening there that we kind of lose in the way that we tend to have meals together today. And so as that's happening, that makes it a really big deal when Jesus is sitting down and having meals with sinners, right? And we talked in the last series about how controversial that would have been, that Jesus is eating with tax collectors, he's eating with traitors to the Jewish people, he's eating with people who are not walking with God. Um, And so Peter, this is kind of that same area that instead of sitting and and sharing that fellowship with everybody who loves Jesus, Peter is starting to draw lines in the church. That, well, there's Jewish believers, there's Gentile believers, and I'm going to actually start following the law a little bit here and be separate from the Gentiles. And so this is something that is not healthy for the church. It's not healthy for the gospel. It's mixed messages for sure. And if nothing else, Paul is not a committed person when it comes to mixed messages. He wants to clarify everything very, very clearly. He does that in all of his writings. He he wants the gospel as simple and clear as it can be. So Peter is worried about the circumcision group. He starts acting the way they want him to act. Other leaders apparently start to do it. Paul says even Barnabas was led into that. And so there's division happening in the church, and the gospel is being corrupted. So verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And so Paul says there's something in the way they were acting that is compromising the truth of the gospel itself. Like it's not just about who do we eat with. There is something in the way that they're acting that was so important. I like the fact that Paul calls them out in front of everybody, and maybe he could have done it privately. Uh, But what I liked about that was, well, he's not doing it secretly, right? He's not doing a behind-the-back campaign. Like he's, he's being a man. He's confronting him to his face. He's saying, I have a problem with this, and we need to talk about that. And so what he's saying to Peter is, Peter, you're Jewish. Like you were born Jewish. You were born under the law. You were born. You were circumcised. Yet now in Christ, you've moved away from that. You're living in the freedom of the gospel. You're living like a Gentile would live. You're not bound to the law because you believe that Jesus has set you free from that. So you grew up under it. You have found freedom in Christ and you don't live like a Jewish person under the law anymore. But now that there are Gentiles coming into the church, you're doing what the circumcision group wants you to do, and you're trying to force them to act like a Jewish person and follow all the laws again. So you're moving in the wrong direction in the freedom department, right? You had freedom from all that pressure to follow the rules and try and earn your standing with God. You've been freed from all of that, and now some Gentiles have come along, and you're trying to make them live that way. That is not the truth of the gospel. 
And so he has to correct it because the gospel is being compromised. The, the church is being divided into Jew and Gentile when it's supposed to be all united as one in Christ. And so Paul has to correct the error. Moving on, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so there is, uh, again, just a beautiful clarity here where we're trying to get down to how are we saved? How are we made right with God? So he says, we who are Jewish and not sinful Gentiles, and he doesn't mean that Gentiles are more sinful than the Jewish people. He just means the Gentiles have not known God. They haven't known the law. They haven't tried to follow the commandments. That's all he means by that. Everybody is a sinner. Um, and so there is a, a clarity that he's bringing it to here that a person is not justified by the works of the law, by, by following the rules. That's not how you get right with God. But, and that sounds backwards, right? Because you think, well, obeying the rules, obeying what God wants, that makes God happy. And therefore, when God's pleased with us, uh, that's where the blessing comes. And Paul says that's actually not how the gospel works. It's a gospel based on faith. You put your trust in what Jesus did for you, not that you earn it yourself. And it's not that our works aren't important, but they don't save us is the point. So every time it says works of the law, he's talking about earning right standing with God by, by following the rules really well, by obeying what you're supposed to do. No one gets justified that way. When we used to teach on the word justified in Sunday school, um, what we would teach the kids is justified means just as if I'd never sinned. It's kind of clunky. It doesn't really work that great, but it's a little, I remember it still all these years later. So it's just as if I'd never sinned. It is to be declared innocent. And so how do we get right with God when it comes to our sin? It's not by working harder to do good things, because that doesn't solve the problem of the things that we've done that aren't good, but to be justified, to find that place where it's just as if I'd never sinned, that only comes from faith in Jesus. Because all of our hope then is, well, Jesus actually did it for us. I'm not paying the price for my own sins. Jesus did that for us on the cross. I can't solve my own problem that this earthly life ends in death. Jesus did that for us by triumphing over death in his resurrection and then inviting us into life with him. It's his gift offered to us that we receive by faith, not by the works of the law, not by working at it and earning it. Paul would say elsewhere in Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. We don't justify ourselves before God by doing all the things. He is the one who justifies us. That's the good news of the gospel. He does it for us, and he offers it to us as a gift. And when he does, no one can charge me with sin anymore in God's eyes. When I stand before God on my judgment day, there will be no angel, no demon, no Satan who can charge me with any sin whatsoever because God has justified me in Jesus Christ. I'm free and clear 
I am declared innocent. I am fully welcomed in to everything that God has because of what he has done. It is God who justifies us. And so one of the reasons that's really good news is that when it comes to many other religions, philosophies of the world, there's kind of a common sense thing that says, well, if I do good, then then that's how I get ahead. And if I want to please God and earn my way into heaven, then I'll do the good things that he calls me to do. And it's not that we're not called to obedience, and we'll hit on that as we move through the book, but it's that the problem with that sort of mentality is that if I'm taking on a view that says I have to do good things to earn my way into heaven, to earn my way into forgiveness, to earn my way into right standing, it raises a really, really, really important question, which is, well, how much do you have to do? And how will you ever know if you've done enough? And so you end up living your life just going, oh, I hope I make it. And that's not particularly good news. And so if what the circumcision group said was true, that it's that, yeah, Jesus died for us and he rose for us, but you also need to to somehow make your way into heaven through following the law, again, that's not particularly good news. That's kind of what they had before, right? That they were trying to please God and get to know him and and walk with him through the law. So then Jesus didn't really need to come, which we're going to get to as we move through our passage today. So it's ironic that even Peter, who Paul has just told he had to correct publicly, Peter would say this earlier in the story uh, in Acts 15.10, as they're trying to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles who are coming to faith. He says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? That yoke is the law, following the law. He's saying, like, none of us have ever been able to live up to this perfectly. So why would we say to the Gentiles who are coming in, here you go, try to live up to this perfectly, when what we actually believe is that Jesus has done it for us. And that as Jesus has done it for us, out of gratitude and out of the power of his spirit, we begin to live out a life of obedience to God because we love him and we want to make him happy. But we don't do it to earn anything in his standing. We've been declared free and clear because of what Jesus has done. On, moving on, verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, he means the Gentiles, if we're hanging out with the Gentiles that the law told us not to hang out, out with, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And we see Paul touch on this in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. A lot of people, understandably, in the early church were worried that if you took Paul's message too far, then people would start to say, oh, I'm saved with grace, so sin doesn't matter, obedience doesn't matter, I can live however I want because I'm washed clean by the blood. And Paul would make very clear over and over and over again, no, that's not what this is about. That that as you're saved from your sin, as you are filled with the Spirit, God starts to transform you, and then you actually don't want to sin anymore. And it's not about, well, i got to earn my way into God's favor. It's about God's changing you from the inside out by his Holy Spirit, by his word. As that work is happening in you, you move away from sin. And you start living out this truth of, of what God wants us to live by, not out of an obligation, but because he's actually empowering you to want to live that way. Because we look at God's holy standard and we say, oh, wow, that's the best way to live. To live in obedience to God's word is better than sin. And whatever cheap pleasures or cheap promises sin offers us, it's not comparable to the eternal glory of what God offers us in Jesus. 
So if we're seeking to be justified in Christ, this was apparently an argument probably that the Galatians were wrestling with. So is that saying, if we're saved by faith in Christ, that, uh, that you can just go ahead and keep sinning, that we can just go out and live as anyone else in the world live? Paul says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker, right? Like I was trapped in sin before. Jesus set me free from that. And if I'm going to go out and deliberately live my lifestyle in that way after I've been set free, free, then I'm a real lawbreaker at that point. Because before I was trapped in sin and there was no way out. Now I've been set free from sin. And so if I'm going to deliberately go back, then, then there's, there's no excuse at that point, right? Because I know the truth and I'm choosing to turn away from it. And so as the law had come through Moses, uh, the Jesus lived the law out perfectly. The Jewish people followed the law. Uh, the Gentiles didn't. And so, you know, now the church is just in this great kind of wrestling match of what do we do with all of this and how are we understanding that as it relates to Jesus? Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so uh, continuing Paul's last thought, that, that the law condemned me as a sinner and condemned me to death, ultimately. And so through the law, I died in my sin, rightly so. God's standard is still his standard. And yet, even as I died there, I have been brought to life now in Jesus. That just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, so with him I die to my old self and I rise again to new life. We're going to have a baptism service in a few weeks. And that's when we go into the water, that's one of the symbols that we're laying down our old life committed and lost in sin. And we're celebrating what he is bringing us now into knowing him and being filled with the spirit and on this journey to walk with him and know him and live with him. And so there's this beautiful picture of the gospel that in Jesus, I died to my old self, but Jesus didn't leave me there. He's brought me back to life and I'll experience the fullness of that life one day when I see him face to face, but I actually get to start living that life right now. That we are living out the resurrected life by the power of the Holy Spirit right now. We get to experience God now. We get to leave behind our sin now. We get to know his presence now. We get to know his word now. We get to know him in an intimate way now. And so continuing on, as, as Paul touches on this theme in other places, uh, in Romans 7, 4, he puts it this way. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. That we're not called to earn our standing with God by the law anymore. That part of our life is dead. And Paul would use the metaphor in Romans 7 of it's like a woman whose husband died and who married a new husband. She's not sort of married to the old husband. That marriage is over, and now she's in a new marriage with her new husband. And so, so we used to be committed to the law, but that we've died to that season of life now, not because there's no rules anymore, but now we have a new marriage to Jesus, and now he leads us into obedience. He leads us in the way that he wants us to go. And not only that, he transforms us by the Holy Spirit so we can actually live out the way he's called us to live. And so we've died to that list of rules that we were trying to accomplish that we could never fully get to. We've died to that season of life. We've died to that way of thinking so that we can walk with Jesus. That in Jesus' death, he deals with the problem of our sin. In Jesus' resurrection, he deals with the problem of our death and he invites us into life with him. 
And now our obedience comes as we walk with him and as he does his work in us, as he transforms us. And I'm not constantly going, have I done enough, Lord? 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 Now it's, Lord, I love you. I want to please you. I want to live your way. And thank you that you are with me and you're going to walk with me as we do this together, as you make me more like you and as you show me the way that I should go. Christ in me. And that's something that no one in the Old Testament law had. That wasn't a blessing that came to them. That comes to us in Jesus. First, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If your right standing with God could be earned, then there's people in the Old Testament who were already trying to do that, right? That's what Moses was trying to do. That's what David was trying to do. That's what the prophets were trying to do. And there were people back there who were called righteous people in different ways. They weren't perfect. They still were sinners, but they were doing well in terms of pleasing the Lord and they were doing good things and they were living their life after God's law. So if we could get right with God by following the rules, then we could have just kept doing that. There would have been no need for anything else. The fact that Jesus had to come and die shows us how fruitless that pursuit is. That you can't be justified by doing it or or else there would have been no need for anything else. There would have been no need for Jesus to go to the cross. There would have been no need for the resurrection. And so uh, we don't actually want to live the way people were trying to live in the circumcision group, right? We don't want that. You don't want your standing with God to be conditional with how well you followed the rules yesterday versus how well you followed it today. That, that is an unbelievable burden to carry on yourself. And I do think a lot of Christians still live that way. And they say, I did something really stupid last week. How do I get right with God again? And it's like, you know what? You're already right with God. And it doesn't mean there aren't consequences to what you did, and it doesn't mean you don't need to confess, and it doesn't mean there's not stuff to work on and and all of those things. But your standing with God is settled in Jesus. There's not enough good you can do to earn your way there. Uh, There's not enough bad you can do to lose your spot. It's all done because of Jesus and what he has done. When you grab onto Jesus, you are grabbing onto life forever. And so Paul is really not happy at what's going on in this church because the message I've just been sharing with you, that's the message he preached, right? There's incredible freedom that comes with understanding. It's not about what I do or what I don't do. It's about what Jesus has done and I don't have to always worry about where I'm at and I don't always have to work and work and work and work and work. There's so much freedom that comes when we say it's just Jesus and nothing else. It's just Jesus and nothing else. And so the Galatian church had grabbed onto that And now they're moving away from that. The circumcision group has come in and they're saying, it's not just Jesus though, guys. You got to do X, Y, and Z. You got to add to what Jesus has done. And so Paul is, is, again, fiery in his passion for the gospel and fiery in his desire to protect the church. As we move into chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, literally it means you people who aren't using your brains. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Literally, who has cast their spell on you and deceived you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The gospel was presented clearly to you. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Again, have you left your brains behind? 
After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you not trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? And so he is appealing, firstly, to their lived-out experience. So he came in preaching the gospel. They received the gospel. They received salvation. They received the Holy Spirit. And they received it because they believed what they heard, right? He came and said, Jesus died. He rose again. He invites you into life. They said, we believe that. The Spirit came. Their lives began to change. That's how that happened. And so he appeals to their lived experience. He's saying, did that happen because you worked really hard to do good things? Or did that happen because you heard the gospel and you responded? My own story of coming to Jesus, I had grown up in church and, uh, and just didn't really care. My parents made me go. I didn't really care for it. Um, but I went every Sunday, and they, they were faithful to bring us. And when I was 18, again, just not interested in God, not interested to Jesus, in Jesus, living far from him, not orienting my life towards him in any way, uh, had an evening in a conversation where uh, just someone said something where all of a sudden I went, oh, God's real. There was just something, it was kind of an offhand comment. And for the first time in my life, God was really, really real. And I became very aware of my sin. And I became very aware uh, of my standing with God, which was not good. And I became very aware of just the, the weightiness of how far I had drifted from him. And so I went home that night, and I, I'd grown up in church long enough that I knew kind of what the deal was. So I got on my knees. I was living at home at my parents' house in the basement of my parents' home. And I, I never prayed really before in my life. I, I didn't know for sure what to say, but I uh, had heard enough altar calls and things that I knew uh, the basics. And so I just said, Lord, I am sorry for my sin, and I want to know you, like for real. And what seemed like a Holy Spirit bomb just fell in the room in that moment. Just and it just felt like wave after wave after wave of this powerful force washed over me. And I felt the lifting of that guilt and the lifting of that stress and all of the conviction that I'd been carrying went away. I was filled with hope. I was filled with joy. I, I wept and I laughed and I just sat in the presence of God. And I think it was probably 10 minutes, no more than that. But I got up and life was different forever from that point on. Now... Did that happen because I was following the rules really well? Like, by definition, I was at the worst rule-following period of my life. Right? I, was, I was breaking many rules and some intense rules. I was as far from God as I've ever been. So it wasn't that, right? It wasn't that, oh, he's really pleased because I followed the rules. I followed the law really well. It's like, no, because I heard something that made me understand the gospel, and I said, Jesus, yes, please, and then the Holy Spirit came. Salvation came. The, the presence of God came. So that's what Paul is getting at with this church. Did Guys, did you get saved because you followed the rules really well? Or did you get saved because you heard about Jesus and you grabbed a hold of him? And as you heard about Jesus and you grabbed a hold of him, the Holy Spirit came. God worked miracles among you. And it wasn't because you followed the rules so well that you earned God's blessing and God's favor. It's because you believed what you heard. You heard the good news and you said, hey, that's really good news. I want to receive that good news. And then God began to work in your life. And so he's appealing to their lived experience. He's saying, guys, when, when you got saved, when the Holy Spirit showed up, you, you didn't earn that by following the rule. So what you received by faith, why are you trying to go back to rules again? 
what you received by faith, by the Spirit, why are you trying to, through the flesh, through your, through your actions, why are you trying to earn that back again? Why are you moving in the wrong direction, basically, is what he's saying. Why are you going backwards? You've already received the fullness of salvation and God himself coming to live inside you by his Holy Spirit. You've come and you've received that as a gift by faith. Why in the world would you want to get back under that yoke of, but I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to earn this and I got to earn that and if I don't do this, then God won't do that. Why would you want to move backwards? Receive the gift for what it is. Remember where you came from. He's appealing to where they've been and, and reminding them of their story. Paul would say this elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the sign that you're right with God. You have the Holy Spirit. You're marked. You're sealed. You're right with him. You don't have to, once that happens, you're good, right? You don't need to earn anything else. And again, not that we don't want to live in a way that pleases God. And we'll get to that as we go through this series. People, when I talk this way, people get nervous that kind of like with Paul, oh, so you're saying there's no sin or that what we do doesn't matter. It's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what Paul is saying. But if you have the Holy Spirit, that's the sign. You don't have to earn anything else. That's how you know you are right with God, when you've had that taste of heaven through the Holy Spirit. All right, we are getting to the end. Verse 3, 6 to 9. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not just the Jews, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham thousands of years earlier. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul has just appealed to their lived experience. Guys, you received the Spirit by faith. Why do you want to move backwards? Now he's making a biblical argument. Now let's look to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures have to say. So Abraham was the man of faith. Scripture says that Abraham trusted in God when God said you're going to have a child even though he was an old man and God said your descendants will be like the stars in the sky like the sand on the seashore all nations of the world are going to be blessed through you even though Abraham was a childless old man at that point and it says that Abraham believed God he trusted in God and God credited it to him as righteousness Paul would use that same quote in Romans as well that Abraham's faith God was willing to look at and say, I'm going to count that as good works, as, as if you're doing the right thing, as if you're living the right life. God credited it to him as if it was righteous action. God saw that and was pleased by that faith. And so Abraham trusted in God that this promise was coming, that all people of the world would be blessed through him. It was an impossible promise for a 90-year-old man, you know, who's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a baby. Uh, it's never happened, and his wife is also old. And so as he is hearing this from God, he believes God, and God credits to him his righteousness. So this idea of faith has been around for a very long time, long before Jesus. God has been pleased by faith. And so the descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. It was not just going to be something in his literal bloodline where the Jewish people would be blessed and come to the Lord, that there is more than that. It's going to be through the Jewish people that the whole world is going to come to God. 
It's all going to happen. The gospel is going to be fulfilled through the bloodline of the Jewish people through Abraham, but it's going to go global. So Paul is saying again, for what was a pretty new idea at the time, oh, God's always wanted to bring the Gentiles in, right? In the Old Testament, God is, is primarily revealing himself as the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people. But Paul's saying it's always been the plan that all people would be invited to the table, that everybody would be invited into the family. And so moving on to verse three, verse, chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written in the law, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, everything. And so Paul's saying, you know, there's a, there's a deeply flawed notion if you're thinking I can follow the law well enough that I can earn my way into God's standing. Because the law itself clearly says, cursed is everyone who doesn't follow everything that's in this book. So here's the thing about everything. You got to do everything. And nobody can do everything. And Paul will say elsewhere in, in Romans that the law is there primarily to show us what sin is. To make us aware of our fallenness and our brokenness so that we understand we need help. We understand we need a savior. And so the problem with, well, you got to follow the law and that's going to make you right with God, is that you're under the curse of sin and the curse of death if you can't follow it all perfectly. And newsflash, no one except Jesus has been able to follow it all perfectly. And so if you're trying to follow it perfectly and you're falling short by definition, you're under the curse of sin, and the curse of sin ultimately leads to death. And that's the problem with trying to earn it, is you can never get there enough because all of us are sinners, and we can't live it out perfectly. It's not possible. And so if I'm trying to get right with God by following it perfectly, by definition, I'm under a curse. And that's really bad news, but that's not exactly how this is all going to end, obviously, because there is more to come, as there always is with Jesus. No one who relies on the law is justified before God. No one is declared innocent because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So the law is based on doing, on living it out. And, and it's not a bad thing to want to live out a life that pleases God. But no one is made right because that's just not how law works. We have laws in our land. Um, not to brag, but I'm a pretty good Canadian law follower. I, I think I follow most, if not all of them. And um, I might speed a little bit, but it's within the 10 over that most of us do. So it's, it's all right. Uh, I've driven by cops and they've let me go. It's fine. But when it comes to law, if I'm a good Canadian and I, I follow the rules and I drive on the right side of the road and I, I follow the Leamington bylaws and the Ontario laws and I pay my taxes and I, I live a law-abiding life and I do that my whole life and then tomorrow I rob a bank... I'm not able to stand before the judge and say, well, what about the other 42 years where I did all the good stuff, right? That should cancel out the bank that I robbed. That's not how law works, right? That's not how it works. It doesn't matter how much you've obeyed. It matters what you broke. And it's the same with God's law as well. It doesn't matter how much good I do. It doesn't solve the problem of my sin. It doesn't solve the problem of what I broke. And in the gospel, Jesus goes to the cross to solve the problem of what I broke. He goes to solve the problem of my sin for me. And that's good news. 
Because no matter how much good I do, I can never fulfill God's law perfectly. And if I can't fulfill it perfectly, by definition, I'm under the curse of law, and, or the curse of sin and the curse of death. But Paul wraps up the passage by saying this in Galatians 3.13. This is one to highlight and underline. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole, or your version may say hung on a tree. It it just means to be hung to death, as Jesus was on the cross. So Jesus becomes a curse for us as he hangs on the cross, and through that he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might also come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And the word redeemed there is a word that gets used typically in relation to slavery, that, that someone pays a price to get you the slave out of chains. Someone comes along and says, I don't want you to be a slave anymore, so I'll pay the price to purchase your freedom and get those chains off of you. That's what Jesus did for us. And the chains of our sin and the chains of our separation from God and the chains of that weight, that yoke of I got to earn my way out of this and never being able to do it, that hamster wheel of trying to please God through my own actions that can never get me anywhere. Jesus redeems us from all of that. And as he hangs there on the tree, he becomes the curse. And as he dies, the curse gets broken. And we are invited into life with him. As he pays that price, we are loosed from our chains and set free into freedom in him. Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up here. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus Christ, just Jesus. Nothing else needs to be added. And if anyone's ever saying you need to add this to it or you need to believe exactly this thing or else or you need to sign off on this or you need to accomplish that or you need to pray this way or whatever, then they're doing what the circumcision group was doing. The issue might be different, but it's the same problem. You're adding to what Jesus did. And if we're ever adding or trying to add to what Jesus did, then we're essentially saying what Jesus did wasn't enough. Right? His death wasn't enough. His resurrection wasn't enough. And we, with Paul, would say, that is blasphemy. And I don't use that word very often. But that's blasphemy. That is heresy to suggest that we need to add anything to what Jesus has done. It's a gift, right? It's a gift. I was at a birthday party yesterday, and and there were gifts, right? It was for my one-year-old nephew. He doesn't know what's going on, but a bunch of people were there, and, and we brought gifts. And as we bring gifts, there's no price tag attached to it. There's nothing he has to do for it. It's just, hey, we love you. Here's a gift. The gospel comes to us as a gift. There's, there's no price tag attached to it. There is nothing that you need to contribute to it. It comes to you as a gift. The gospel is Jesus, just Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything. He redeemed us from that need. He redeemed us from our sin. He redeemed us. He paid the price to bring us out of the chains into freedom, where I am right with God, not because of anything I contribute, but because I trust in everything he's done for me. And so I don't have to carry the guilt, the burden, the stress, the hamster wheel of works and effort. I am justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned because of what Jesus has done. And that's good news. That's really good news. And that's worth worshiping for. So we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we get ready to close. And let's worship him because he's worthy of the worship. Let's worship him because this is good news. It's worth celebrating.